0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not.
0: Two real-life authors, and we better make a start. And, and we better
1: welcome them, yes.
0: Indeed. Now, Hydra, Jan, is a Greek island, a place to get away from everything. But a Hydra is also a serpentine monster with nine heads, a word perhaps to describe indefinable problems. Now, these ideas, both these ideas, come together... In Adrianne Adrian Howell's novel, Hydra. So, Adrianne, welcome to 3CR.
2: Thank you for having me, David. Yeah,
0: Anya, your narrator, is some, a somewhat conflicted individual. Mm. There's both refinement and <laughs> villainy in her personality. Can you flesh her out a bit for us?
2: Yeah, she's she's fraught, she's awkward, unpredictable, and she's also a bit of a snob. She likes good antiques, especially... Mid-century furniture.
0: She loves those antiques and knows quite a lot about them. Mm. But what's she prepared to do to get them?
2: Anything, really.
0: <laughs> well, here we go. She's got um, now um, Mrs. Heigel who's looking at the property of uh, which is going up to, for auction and she spies a chair. Just so happens to be the chair Mrs. Heigel is sitting on. <sighs> I couldn't hold it in my hands, so I uncrossed my legs, shifted my weight back onto my heels and stood, knocking the teacup onto her lap. Her tea pooled on her white dress. She rose and gasped, smashing the Susie Cooper on the floor. The rush of blood must have been too much for a frail body in mourning, seeing as she moved to sit back down. But the chair was gone. I had it in my hands. She fell backwards and, as there was nothing to her, I knew it was her coccyx that broke when she began to scream. A rather comic sort of interlude, but also catastrophic in many ways.
2: Yes, yeah. Anya's an antiquarian. She works at a uh, antique auction house, and she's currently in the when the book starts. She's working administration, um, but she's desperate to become a specialist. And uh, her life at that point has kind of become untethered, and she sees her only option to become a specialist is stealing the chair from under a mourning mother's derriere, as it says, which obviously is not going to work, but she doesn't really see that.
0: Anya also has this philosophy on antiques. Antique markets trade in nostalgia, mm. echoes of memory. So she's got a rather sophisticated outlook on what antiques represent.
2: She does. She, she studied at Sotheby's... Institute of Fine Art or Sotheby's Auction House. They've got a university associated with the Auction House and she studied there and she did her thesis on Distilling Antiques, the
0: Classification of Objects Through Essence and Archetype. Yes,
2: so it's a Jungian philosophy that she brings to thesis and uh, she wants to basically change how the Auction House classifies the antiques as opposed to antiques belonging to say Asian arts or the decorative arts. She wants to move for instance a clock in to uh, the department of grotesque objects.
0: But the antics also represent memories Mm. and nostalgia and that becomes an intriguing point in the novel because it's memories that sort of become a hydra for us in some ways.
2: Yes, and I think particularly for Anya, uh, when the novel opens, it's the memory of her mother who has died a few years earlier and coming to terms with... Uh, The memory of uh, the woman that she has, but also uh, discovering that perhaps that woman was more complicated and not the object of perfection that she thinks that she is.
0: And she's also carrying a problem because she had been on holiday in Hydra, but what's happened there?
2: Yes, well, that's where her marriage ended. Again, her own fault, but ultimately, I think you could say that they probably weren't meant to be together, but the way in which it ended was definitely another fraught
0: Trauma. But that that adds to this baggage she is carrying Mm. with her along the way. Now, just as we get established with the storyline of Anya, the novel uh, basically goes into a whole other narrative and a whole other style. Uh, We have uh, a military inquiry taking place. What were you doing to the reader here? And what's happening? Mm,
2: yeah, so the, the novel entwines three narratives. And at the time I was really interested in looking at story and narrative as a way of exploring kind of the disruption of our known realities. And so I was reading Nicole Krauss, um, especially Great House, and I loved the way that her her stories kind of brush past each other but never really grab hold of one another. What I wanted to introduce to Hydra was another structure, another structure to the story. Because the book deals with otherworldly and supernatural elements, I wanted this to really disrupt the reader. Yeah.
0: Well, it's it's a series of interviews and yes. communiques that are military, and we wonder how these storylines connect. But there is a connection because where does Anya end up? On HMAS Hydra. Yes. As in a base. So yes. she, what's she doing there?
2: Yes, so she, after getting fired from her job, she ends up on this, discovering this property that is being offered for a 100-year lease. And it so happens to be a property that was once owned by HMAS Hydra. So the name of the island she was on when she lost her marriage, her husband. And for some reason that appeals to her. There's something in Anya that is incredibly self-destructive. And she wanted to base herself there. She wanted to hide there.
0: But all of a sudden, things start happening, especially on the doorstep of the cottage she is renting. We find there are faeces Mm. left on the doorstep. There's blood on the doorstep. There's a single sneaker So we're sort of going into another style in many ways of a a horror or mystery sort of storyline here.
2: Yes, it's all about the disruption of what you think the story is going to be. I think I was reading a lot of, I think the term is epistolary techniques in literature where they introduce, um, as you said before, documentation and...
0: Well, yeah, it it disrupts the reader, but there is a, uh, there's something there in that area associated with the base HMAS, Hydra. And it's become part of folklore in the area. And it's something called Anaba. Yes. And when anything goes wrong, we blame Anaba. Yes. Does Anaba mean anything to you, Ms. Harley? I looked at him quizzically. Raising his head, he surveyed the market. I believe you recently purchased the property. I nodded. You might not yet have realised, Ms Hiley, that we're a community of tale-bearers, and sometimes our folk tales turn from fables to excuses. Now, we can't give away what an Abba is, but we can make a few suggestions that perhaps it's the manifestation of our own weaknesses or our memories in some ways coming to life or our anxiety. What's taking place here What with Ann Arbor?
2: Well, I think it also goes back to Anya's thesis that I was talking about earlier, the Jungian thesis and the concept of the beast within that she talks about. So there's very much the question throughout the book of moral culpability and whether or not how answerable you kind of have to be to certain things. I think Anaba is a manifestation of that to a degree, and people have within the book have been using her to dis- to explain and excuse some of their own behaviour.
0: Well, everybody in that community uses Anaba. Yes. There's a car accident at one point, mm. and the driver basically blames Anaba. So basically, the listener and reader are going to have to read on to find out what happens. But... Anya is carrying also the baggage of a father who is estranged and he meets with her and basically rebukes her. You are an adult. You know what deception and entrapment are and you committed them anyway. Hmm. So he confronts her, having been estranged for such a long while. And,
2: you know, he's not wrong. And it's interesting because he... He is completely self absorbed and he's a narcissist himself, but what he says is right. So I like the idea of this bit of truth coming from someone who is just an asshole, really. But
0: But for Anya, it gets even worse. She tries to lay in wait to see if she can find who's leaving things on her doorstep, mm. if she can see what Anar Ba is, the manifestation of it. But all she ends up doing is injuring herself, taking things to extremes. So she is, in fact, the cause of her own destruction and problems.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And this reaches a crescendo because you have a storm and what happens with the storm, the way you've written it.
2: Yeah, so I think storms have been used as literary tropes forever, but I really like the idea of it being in both, being in two of the narrative storylines, crossing over. And it's once the storm has happened, once she's come to the end of that storm, that she's able to have some kind of magical thinking that allows her to then see, without giving too much away, see certain things. And it, I also try to put it with some... Uh, juxtapose it with something that happened... Uh, in the real world, in our real world, that was incredibly unsettling and, yeah, disrupted what we thought was our trusted universe.
0: Meanwhile, we still have Lieutenant Brendan Quartermain interviewing a range of people from HMS Hydra about events that have taken place. One person in particular, Professor Colin Tatterson, turns up later. So those Mm. interviews were in 1985. Presumably the book is set much later. Yeah,
2: 2016 I think that.
0: And basically Tatterson is still there and there's a medal that turns up which adds again further things to this puzzle. Mm. What's it doing there? What is it about? So what's the story? So there's still this storyline where that the military and those interviews link Mm. to what Anya's going through but really we do have to ask Anya discovers what Ann Arbart is, but does this mm. actually change or alter her personality or understanding of the world?
2: Yeah, I don't think so. I think, well, it does in the sense that kind of deems her actions permissible, given that she acknowledged them. <laughs> so...
0: But anyway, you have been playing with narrative and we've run out of time. Mm. Uh, but that playing of narrative comes together in that last, very last line, which I think I can give away. For narrative is a human concept and has nothing to do with the wild. So that use of narrative to an altering of that narrative to change the storyline and get the reader intrigued. So the reader and listener need to read Hydra by. Adrienne Howell, and it's a Transit Lounge release. Adrienne, thank you very much for talking with me today.
1: Well, we're moving a little bit more locally than London and Greek islands. We're into Melbourne, but it's not Melbourne now. It's 10 years after the pandemic. And how has Melbourne changed? We may expect technological advancements, but what about how we live? This is what Anna Mandoki has written about in her debut novel, Random Acts of Unkindness. Welcome, Anna.
3: It's a pleasure to be here, Jan.
1: Emily is a tutor at Melbourne University. She also has a lab with staff and doing
3: funded research. What's the project? So her project is based on the research of an actual scientist in the 1960s called J.B. Calhoun. And she's doing experiments with rats and she's looking at what happens if you put rats in a cage together and you keep increasing the population of the rats so that they feel stressed by that overcrowding. What actually happens to, to those rats? How is their cognition affected? How is how is their behaviour affected?
1: The university adver- aren't really advertising what she's doing. It's kind of
3: hidden away a bit. It is, and that's because of the sensitive nature of animal research. So, yes, they have to keep it very quiet and, and not really say much about it, but it is being funded by developers Mm. and commercial interests who are obviously very interested in finding benefits of putting people, a lot of people together.
1: This John Galoon who originally did this research, he came across a term called compassionate revolution.
3: Yes. The Compassionate Revolution, uh, he actually foresaw the communications revolution of the 1980s. Mm. He said what needed to happen in order for the human race to continue to increase in population but still survive and thrive even was first of all the 1980s communications revolution where you had technology exploding. Um, and then he said, beyond that, probably in the 2020s, there would need to be a compassionate revolution where people start to think about each other and put each other first and really have that concept that, that whatever you do is to further the fulfilment of other people, the people around you rather than yourself.
1: At transforming those thousands of eyes into a single we, well... Emily's working on this, but she's also volunteering her time. So where where is she doing that?
3: She's volunteering at an organisation called Careline. And it's a, a phone service and people phone in. It's often the lonely, the isolated who phone in and want someone to talk to. So she's doing some volunteering there. And the thing about Emily is she's a very good scientist, but she's actually not so good at relationships and connecting with people. So she's trying to push herself to do this kind of work to make connections.
1: One of her regular ring-ins is Roz. Ros has an ability that she tells Emily about and, and maybe we can
3: get a sense of that from page 55. It was like listening, that's how she thought of it, but using her mind rather than her ears. If the message was powerful enough, something affecting many people, then she could hear what was happening. She could see the images created directly in her brain. She could experience human violence and distress when it was amplified many times over, even if it was a world away, whether she wanted to or not. She had always been able to hear things this way. It was as automatic as breathing for her. We'll see examples of this later, but let's get back
1: to Emily. One of her students is Amala. What's
3: Amala's background? Amala is an international student and she's come from India to study in Australia and she is, she I guess she had high expectations about coming to Australia and perhaps they've not, it's not been quite what she expected and she's struggling, she's finding it hard to make connections, She's she's feeling a sense of dislocation and she's really missing home. She has a brother here, brother Rajiv.
1: Now, he's sharing a one-bedroom flat. He's sleeping on the couch and his childhood friend from India, Sunil, is sleeping on the bed. Now, Rajiv is working as an Uber driver and studying. In contrast, how is Amala living?
3: Amala is living in Unexpected luxury and certainly Sunil is a little bit suspicious of this, mm. very suspicious of this. Uh, she has beautiful clothes, jewel-like colours. She's funding all of this expensive lifestyle by working at the Maya department store. Oh. So, <laughs> so she says. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Amala also has a connection to Ros.
3: Yeah, so Amala... Is studying social work, and as part of her social work placements, she's visiting the neighbour of Roz, who's called Spiro. And she goes around to help him out. And so that way she meets Roz, who's visiting, who's also popping in to see her neighbour from time to time.
1: Now, Roz, we know, is really very poor. She's a very creative, abstract photographer. Mm -hmm. And she finds food wherever. She has a very devoted dog. And anyway, she never complains about how difficult life is. But others do. And this is where we get the random acts of unkindness, Mm. R-U-A.
3: Yes. Now, that's a blog that Amala has set up. So she has invited people to submit acts that have happened to them, events that have happened to them where people have been unkind to them. And then she reads those submissions and she provides her own kind of special kind of advice on what, what she thinks they should do about it. So she, that provides a bit of light relief in the book. In contrast to that,
1: we get the absolute horror of some of Ros's thoughts, her, what she sees, her visions. And it's, it's like a suspense story in itself. We get the feel of a father's bewilderment and horror at a tsunami happening in India. A doctor witnessing a bombing at a hospital he's working at in West Papua and his own horrific death. Or a mother curiously wondering about a Mexican mountain sliding and smothering everything in its wake. When these things happen, how does the rest of the world react?
3: Unfortunately, Roz, when she tries to warn people about her premonitions, No one will actually believe her. So she's really stuck in a place where she's starting to simply accept these visions and accept that she's powerless to do anything about them. But then there is a vision that she has that that really triggers her to change that approach and to think, what can I do about this? This vision is what's happening in the rail loop in melbourne mm. so this is in the near future remember so this is when the new metro loop has been built and is operating and Roz has a vision of a terrorist attack i don't want to say too much about no. it but she she has a vision that there's going to be a terrorist attack on the railway line and in the tunnel. And she is very concerned, it seems like, both Amala and Emily are going to be caught up in in this event.
1: So she feels that she must report it, must do something proactive about Mm it. Uh, So the
3: consequence of reporting it? Unfortunately, again, she gets ignored. (laughs) And so this really is a a catalyst for her to, to make the choice Does she act on it and try and and as one person to try and prevent this from happening or does she simply accept it and and let it continue? And she doesn't really
1: realise anything's happening until the Australian Federal Police are breaking down her door. Well, both Emily and Malia have their own personal problems too, something that we would hope women in 10 years' time didn't have, stalkers. Mm. how do they know how does
3: Emily know about her stalker she starts getting text messages initially yes some very odd text messages and also she has a caller to Caroline who is gives her a very uneasy feeling and she starts feeling a little bit paranoid she's seeing understandably she's seeing uh, danger everywhere and and that's kind of the, the effect that stalking can have on you, I think, that you start you start to question yourself and, and question everything around you and the people around you and you don't really trust anyone.
1: And Amala also thinks that she's being followed.
3: Yes, she does. And she, she thinks that, again, she has a secret that she's trying to keep mm. and she thinks that she may be at danger of being found out. Well,
1: now 10 years hence in Melbourne, there's snow, in the city there's refugees from the Pacific
3: countries where are they living? They are all camped in a tent city in the Treasury Gardens. In the Treasury Gardens and Mm. they're about to be expanded
1: into the showgrounds. And just up the road from the MCG on a football match day there is also
3: a protest going on. What's this about? Mm. The protest is about it's outside a new development, a large apartment building and they haven't been able to sell the apartments because the property market has really declined. So the Department of Housing is looking at turning those into housing for homeless people and refugees. Mm. And that's what the protest is about, that there's a certain number of the local residents who aren't very on board with that. Well, this
1: protest and the aftermath bring the characters together in a fast-paced suspense story. But Anna Madaghi, were you aware when writing this that all the men that you've written about in this book are either manipulative or dishonest?
3: Yes, <laughs> and and, all, and the women to an extent as well. Like I don't think there are any really nice people in this. The women do come to you know a realisation later that there'd be a different way of living. Um, but I'll set it in the near future because I wanted to see how we were headed as a society if we continued to focus on our individual interests and needs rather than on the community's interests. And so, for me, that was really about all of the characters are really motivated in a lot of ways by self-interest.
1: Absolutely. Anna Mandoki has written about a slightly futuristic Melbourne of human connection in an increasingly fragmented world and where three very different women's lives become entwined in random acts of unkindness.
0: And the rail loop is going to be completed in 20 years? Oh, ha, 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 <laughs> only an author with a great imagination could think of that. What
1: about eating um, restaurant cuisine of possum
0: brain? Ah, mm, Tantalising Or having
1: Wait. energy credits. Oh, they're all there and so much more. Really, really good read.
0: Well, I was talking with Adrienne Howell, her novel Hydra from Transit Lounge.
1: And, and of course, it was Anna Mandoki with. Random Acts of Unkindness by Midnight Sun Publishing. And that
0: takes us out for a Oh, it a does week. again.
1: God, time goes quickly, It's amazing
0: it? how quickly it flies by. Yeah,
1: thank you to our two authors. It was really great to read your books and hear
0: about them. And so to talk you. about them oh, in course. their presence. Yes. This is
1: just so unique. <laughs> I know. And if we've triggered anybody's interest, of course, you can buy the books or listen back at the podcast.
0: And we'll see you all next week. We will. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.